Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this evening's uh, lecture. My name is Kevin Featherstone. I'm, I'm, I'm the head of the European Institute here at the LSE, and this lecture is uh, part of our series uh, organized by the uh, European Institute. We're very pleased to welcome our speaker this evening, uh, Chris Patton, Lord Patton, uh, to talk about his book, First Confessions of a Sort of Memoir. Well, given his prominent and diverse uh, career, I think even a sort of memoir uh, is uh, most welcome and clearly we're all very interested in hearing about his sort of recollections, as it were. In the 1960s, clearly as a very, very young man, uh, Chris Patton spent some time in the United States. It was a time... Uh, of the civil rights movements and indeed increasing protests against the Vietnam uh, War. Clearly, it was a formative experience uh, for him. To the surprise of some, when he returned to the UK, he joined the then Conservative Research Department and began a career in politics. Later, of course, he served as a Conservative Member of Parliament for some 13 uh, years. He became a minister under Mrs. Thatcher and continued to serve under Prime Minister John Major. Later, he became Chairman of the Conservative Party. When he left Parliament, the Observer uh, newspaper lamented that he was probably the best Tory Prime Minister we never had, as it were. Nevertheless, out of Parliament, his career gained a new momentum. He became an EU commissioner in Brussels. Later, he was the last governor uh, in Hong Kong. And today, he's chancellor of, I forget which university, but I know that he's not Cambridge. Definitely not Cambridge. Uh, but he's the chancellor of it anyway. And uh, in his public life... Chris Patton has had, therefore, a number of identities. And in his book, he identifies himself as a Catholic, a patriot, a European, a liberal Tory, and an internationalist. And I say this because at the very center of the book is a discussion about the politics of identity, written very much in the first person. And he recognizes that the politics of identity is now center stage in British and so much of international politics. By identifying himself, there is an attempt to address how we all have pluralistic identities that shape who we are and what we think politically. It implies the need for a respect for difference, tolerate diversity, to uphold liberal internationalist uh, values. In the book, not surprisingly perhaps, he condemns the new populism and he laments the mistakes of Brexit. Both challenge what he sees himself as standing for uh, for the whole of his public life. With the 20th anniversary of uh, the handover of Hong Kong, Chris Patton has uh, attacked British policy towards Beijing. The UK, he says, has been too weak, supine, kowtowing to the Chinese leadership and neglecting the contravention of human rights. 
The Chinese, he says, have engaged in outrageous breaches of the handover uh, agreement. So hopefully this is a little taster to suggest that we have much to discuss. Uh, Clearly the book covers a range of issues over a very diverse and prominent uh, career. Chris Patton has agreed to speak for about 35 minutes, and I think he wants me to wave at him if he goes to the 36th minute, uh, so we can do that. Uh, And we'll then uh, take questions. There should be plenty of time for uh, your questions from the audience. We must finish by uh, 8 p.m., but uh, to get underway, can you please join me in welcoming the Chancellor of the University of Oxford, Chris Patton. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor, for that uh, courteous obituary notice. Um, um, I sometimes think in the cinema that the trailer is better than the main film, but I hope you don't feel that at the end of my uh, comments um, this evening. Uh, You all know that uh, pretty much the first question in political science as though there were such a thing. Um, Think Donald Trump or the British Foreign Secretary. (laughs) The first question in political science is, who are we? Uh, And that wasn't a question which seemed to be so relevant when politics was divided ideologically between capitalism, uh, communism democracy, totalitarianism, West v. East. But I think increasingly over the years, as that divide has been put behind us, people have become more concerned about identity and some of the consequences of the politics of identity. Armin Malouf, himself a rather complicated man, um, French, Christian, Arab, Novelist writes in French, wonderfully. Armin Malouf talks about the panthers of identity politics and the terrible damage they've done, particularly as political debate or identity has focused very largely on race, on blood, on origins. Now, for me, it may be a rather prosaic point to make. For me, the um, answer to the question, who are we, is we are a collection of eyes. And I would be surprised if your eye wasn't as complicated as mine. Um, I'm very often described in the papers as a Tory grandee. Um, I was brought up in Greenford, which is pre and and post Second World War, um, lower and middle class housing along the arterial roads going west from London. Um, The people who lived there worked at Rockware Glass, at Glaxo, um, and increasingly as the area became more of a home for the diaspora from South Asia, it's where people who worked at London Airport, where people who lived, who lived, who worked at London Airport. Um, so there weren't many grandees acres there. Uh, John Betjeman has a poem about Middlesex in which he talks about Greenford's scent of Mayfields. I must say, I grew up being able to smell the occasional petrol fume, but not many Mayfields. 
To complicate the Tory grandee bit, I was a sort of Irish Tory grandee as well. <laughs> My great-grandfather was born in County Roscommon, which was at the heart of the area affected by the potato famine in 1829. Uh, he left Ireland in the 1840s, went to, work, went to live and work in Lancashire, first of all repairing the bottoms of cane chairs, then moving into the textile business industry. He had four children, one of whom was clever enough to go to a Catholic teacher training college and became in due course a head teacher in one of the slums of Manchester before Catholic schools became, were taken into the national education system under the Balfour Education Act. The, the slum he, he worked in, um, in the middle of Manchester, was uh, lived in principally by Italians who provided the priests and the ice cream for Manchester, and Irish um, who uh, provided the teachers, um, the policemen, and the construction workers. My dad was supposed to go from uh, school, local Catholic school, to Manchester University, um, but decided, to the horror of his parents, that what he really wanted to do was to play the drums in a band. They had, I suspect, inadvertently given him a drum kit when he was 16. And he went off, to their horror, and played the drums professionally, it's rather like Fats Waller, whose father was a clergyman, learned to play um, the piano or the organ in, Fats, in his father's house and then um, his church, and then went off um, and, uh, to his father's horror, um, played in nightclubs. So my father went off to join the Phil Richardson band, playing all sorts of um, glamorous places like the Isle of Man. And one of the more glamorous places they played in uh, was in Exeter, uh, the Rougemont Hotel, where my mum had gone with her fiancé for a dance, saw my father, saw dad, and fell in love immediately. And to the horror of her parents, fetched up marrying not just... Um, those are the days uh, when if you married a Catholic, you had to become a Catholic. She not only married um, uh, an Irishman, not only, not only married a drummer, but married a Catholic Irish drummer, <laughs> which was pretty well hitting, hitting the bottom on, on every count. So I was brought up by them in uh, Greenford um, as a Catholic. I went to the local primary school, and rather as John McGahan says in one of his wonderful books, there's a sense in which the Catholic Church was my book. When I go into um, an art gallery now, or a church, particularly where there are a lot of great Renaissance paintings, I know the stories behind the paintings, because they were the stories that were my intellectual infrastructure at school. So that when the other day, well, last year, um, I went into the French church in Rome for the first time, and saw that wonderful Caravaggio um, of St. Matthew, um, with Jesus coming into whatever it was, St. Matthew's VAT office or whatever, and Jesus pointing at St. Matthew and saying, as it were, you're coming with me, and St. Matthew looking terribly frightened and saying, what, me? I remember the day I was told that 
story by uh, a teacher with an extremely capacious bosom in about the fourth year in, in Our Lady of the Visitation Primary School. I had a pretty classic um, scholarship boy uh, education. I went from primary school to a direct grant school, half independent, half grammar school, don't exist anymore, abolished in the name of social mobility. I then got a scholarship to Balliol. When I went to do the scholarship exams in Oxford, it was the first time I'd ever met a boy who went to a boarding school. I went up to Oxford. There were 17 young historians in my year. Uh, Twelve went to schools that no longer exist, or at least don't exist in their then form. And the way I was taught there, I think, um, helped to um, solidify some of my views about the complexities of identity. My moral tutor was probably one of the two greatest Marxist historians of the second half of the last century, Christopher Hill, the historian of the Civil War of the 17th century. Christopher Hill was, had been a member of the Communist Party until the Hungarian Uprising. Um, he, was an, he wrote an extraordinary sort of encomium about Joe Stalin when Stalin died in 53. Um, he was a, an atheist. Um, all this, this combination, caused a degree of trouble when I was being positively vetted by MI5 um, to become uh, uh, a civil servant in the cabinet office a few years later. They should have spent more time in Cambridge and less in Oxford, it seems to me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Christopher, that experience of being taught by um, Christopher Hill, and as you will have observed, I'm neither communist nor atheist, that experience underlined for me two propositions which have become sadly controversial these days. First, I think the idea of um, no platforming in universities is a complete rejection of what universities should be about. The idea that universities should be paved with safe spaces um, in which you can avoid anybody um, challenging our own preconceptions also seems to me to be a lamentable uh, view of universities. I think what being taught by Hill um, uh, taught me was that, first of all, the world was a lot broader than my own um, uh, views and, uh, and ideas, and secondly, that you could have a, an argument without having a quarrel. The second person who affected me a lot was Maurice Keane, who wrote the best book on chivalry, um, uh, a wonderful, um, stammering, black cigar-chewing, um, Oxford thick-cut marmalade-loving uh, historian. Um, and I remember my first tutorial with him in one of those um, sets of rooms which with some, some of you will be familiar with very overstuffed um, sofas with, with bits of stuffing coming out over the sides of chairs. Uh, and uh, I was supposed to be reading um, to him an essay on Charlemagne. And with Hill, with um, Keane walking backwards and forwards behind me, occasionally dipping a finger rather ruminatively into a jar of marmalade, <laughs> um, I began, Charlemagne can truly be called the founder of modern Europe. And I heard Maurice Keane behind me saying, I, I, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and it taught me the unwisdom of what um, Ernie Bevan used to call clitches, 
um, of, of those sort of generalizations which when you're 18 perhaps seem frightfully smart. The other person I, I should mention, must mention, um, who taught me um, when not absolutely rat-arsed was Richard Cobb, who was probably with Sobul, two or three others, one of the great historians of the last 50 years of the French Revolution. Wrote about La Vie en Marge, wrote not about um, great sweeping events. Indeed, he, he realised that one of his own weaknesses as a historian was that he couldn't stand anybody who ever exercised power, which is one reason why he so hated Robespierre. And he, I don't think he'd have taught anybody who had a good word for, say, to say about Robespierre. Um, he was, um, as I say, he, he liked to have a drop of the lovely stuff. Indeed, more than a drop. Um, when he was on his deathbed, a, a friend of mine... David Gilmore, historian of Italy and historian of, of, uh, uh, of India, went to see him on his deathbed in Abingdon General Hospital. And David goes there. Um, Richard's asleep when David arrives. Um, uh, David walks around the bed, killing time, and eventually sees at the bottom of the bed is there is a note from Richard's nurse saying, this patient will not take his fluids. And... David says it must have been the only time in his life that anybody <laughs> had said that Cobb, Cobb would not take his, his fluids. Um, he was obsessed, as I said, with, uh, with um, different identities. He thought the idea of having a great sweeping sociological explanation for everything was completely preposterous. And he was particularly interested in the French peasant poisoner, Marie Bénard, um, who had a succession of husbands and male relatives who died in mysterious circumstances, all conveniently leaving her large amounts of money. Uh, the police pursued her. Um, she got off uh, eventually after years of being put on trial um, because the prosecutors had mixed up bits of bodies and got them into the wrong um, receptacles. And, and the real killer for, for, for the prosecution was that they found one eye with the wrong cadaver. And I always thought that eye was an enormously important part of the way that Richard looked at the world because um, sceptical about the identity which some people found so apparently easy to make sweeping generalizations about. From Oxford I went to America and then from America I went into politics um, I worked in an American political campaign uh, and got the political bug. And I went to work for the Conservative Research Department rather than taking up a job which I'd been offered as a graduate trainee with the BBC. And when I turned it down, they regarded it as a grotesque example of les majesté. Indeed, I don't think I'd ever heard the words les majesté before. Um, I became a member of the Conservative Research Department. Some of my friends were slightly surprised that I was a Conservative um, since I'd never shown any political in interests at university. Why was I conservative? Partly because I've always hated all-embracing systems or explanations for things. Equally, um, and I think your former distinguished professor, Michael Oakeshott, made this point, I've also always distrusted those who seem to have um, an all-encompassing argument for not believing in systems or not believing in, in socialism. Um, so I became a, 
a conservative, a, a moderate conservative, very old-fashioned, um, described in stri- strikingly um, strange public school lingo by Margaret Thatcher as a wet, um, with, a, with as my heroes, people like uh, Rab Butler, who's my real hero. I, I travelled with um, a photograph of Rab Butler from office to office, every office I've ever been in, as a photograph of Rab. And there's one in um, this remarkable book, which you'll all go and buy. Um, Rab, um, Rab had a quality which I hugely admire. Rab was ambivalent. Sometimes his ambivalence um, leaked into a rather uncharitable ambiguousness. And he could use that ability to be ambiguous to wounding effect. I remember once going to the dinner of somebody who was retiring from politics. Rab was supposed to be the main speaker. The last moment he sent a telegram uh, from uh, the Master's Lodge at Trinity College, Cambridge, saying, sorry, he couldn't come, he had flu, and he finished the telegram saying, there is no one whose farewell dinner I would rather have attended. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he had a a real notion of the importance of politics being about morality and not just getting on. He once said when people were suggesting that we should perhaps operate the British economy with a slightly higher level of unemployment, people who talk about creating pools of unemployment should be thrown in and told to swim. Um, a friend of mine was once with him. Uh, he'd been helping him with, with, his, with a book. Um, and Rab, before my friend went home on a Saturday afternoon, Rab took him into the garden wonderful garden he had in Essex to cut some flowers to take home to his wife. And as Rab was cutting the flowers, my friend said to him, what was the main lesson, um, Rab, that you learned from politics? And he said, oh, that's easy, he said. It's more important to be generous than efficient. By which he didn't really mean that efficiency didn't matter. But what he was saying was that politics should be about values more than price. Price isn't irrelevant, but values are much more important. From the research department, I went into the House of Commons um, and in due course became a, after being slightly tiresome and troublesome, perhaps because I was tiresome and troublesome, became a junior minister, first of all, in Northern Ireland. And I spent two years in Northern Ireland Um, which used to be described as as a sort of Siberian power station. Um, In fact, it was an extraordinarily interesting job. Um, And I felt, I've always felt rather guilty that um, John Ball's political slum um, has created so much amnesia in British British politicians, rather rather as as, uh, people in Washington used to pretend that the southern states didn't exist. Um, I spent two years there as a junior minister. I went back to reorganise the police as part of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, which is the best, um, most important job I've ever done and the one I'm most pleased about. Northern Ireland, uh, people assume, is split by different religious identities. I have to say that the arguments aren't between one group of people who... Uh, are concerned about transubstantiation 
and the others um, who want to sing full in the heart, panting heart of Rome rather than um, a Lutheran, Lutheran hymn about God being a fortress. Um, it was about power. Uh, a great friend of mine, Maurice Hayes, who became a senator in uh, the Republic, he was the leading Catholic civil servant in Northern Ireland. He lived in Downpatrick, just south of Belfast, and he once um, had a family who'd been burnt out of Belfast, moved in next door. And um, he heard them playing in the garden. And one of the kids was saying to her siblings, it's my turn to be the prod. And he leant over the fence and said, Mary, what do you mean? So she said, uh, it's my turn to have a go on the swing. So from that age, kids were given an idea of who was top dog. The divisions in Northern Ireland, you know, the very first decision I had to make was about making a wall between Catholic and, and uh, between new housing and the housing estate. Some, some lived in by Catholic, some by Protestant, to make the wall um, a metre and a half higher. We finished up with a wall that was higher than the Berlin Wall. I remember going to a hospital and um, asking the nurse in A&E whether they'd recently had any casualties in as a result of the troubles. And she said, oh yes, she said, the other day we had a Catholic kneecapping. So I said, and as I said it, I could hear the, um, my detective, my bodyguards, and my private secretary sucking hard. I said, but you can't possibly tell the difference between a Catholic kneecapping and a Protestant kneecapping. And she said, of course we can. The Catholics use a shotgun and the Protestants use a black and decker drill. <laughs> so when identity comes down to that, um, the truth is that the, the notion of Britishness espoused and paraded by the Orange Order or, or by extreme unionists, by, for example, the unionists to whom the government have just got given a bung, that sort of Britishness isn't something which most people in this country could begin to identify or to identify with. Equally, people in the Republic, I think, would have uh, great difficulty identifying despite the fact that until recently Articles 2 and the three, and 3 of the Constitution said something different, would have great difficulty identifying with uh, Republican nationalism, particularly violent Republican nationalism, um, in the North. I mean, if you had a referendum in the Republic, how many people would say, we'd love to have the North? I had two or three other examples of, of uh, dealing with identity politics as a minister, and perhaps I can just or as a minister or as a governor, perhaps I can just mention a couple of others. I spent a lot of time in the Balkans when I was a European commissioner, where we couldn't decide in Europe, meantime people murdered one another, we couldn't decide in Europe whether we should be preventing the disintegration or trying to encourage the disintegration in ways which, of which we approved. Meantime, um, the Serbs hated the Croats, um, because they thought the Croats, rightly, they rightly thought the Croats, wanted to dominate Croatia. 
And the Croatians hated the Serbs because they thought, again, correctly, that the Serbs wanted to dominate um, what was left, what was Yugoslavia. With the Muslims in the middle being slaughtered in larger numbers than either of the other um, two groups. So what was the difference between Serbs and Croats? Um, look at Wimbledon. Those enormous guys with big Serbs with names that finish as I, finish as I see. What's the difference between a Serb and a Croat? Well, Croats are Catholic, um, and the Catholic Church in Croatia has a fairly lamentable history. The Serbs are Orthodox. That's it. They're, they're both supposed to be Christians, but they murdered one another in incontinent quantities for a number of years, and we've sort of got a fix on it now, but only just. Both groups were Slavs, both groups were Christian. I spent my time wrestling with a different sort of clash of identities in Hong Kong, civilizational clash. The clash which um, Samuel Huntington wrote about and the clash which Lee Kuan Yew espoused. The notion was this, that um, trying to protect human rights, civil liberties, rule of law in Hong Kong, trying to do what one could to increase uh, accountability, a little greater democracy, not very much, I have to say, um, was somehow acultural, that people in, um, uh, in Asia didn't care as much about these things uh, as we do in Europe or North America. The way Lee Kuan Yew talked about it, you'd think that there was an Asian political model. And then you tried to work out how the Asian political model fitted democracy in India, uh, Stone Age totalitarianism in North Korea, or all the variations in between. When you go to Shanghai, which is where wonderful things have happened, you're not overwhelmed by a sense of Confucianism. I think that... Uh, it was a challenge, that view of civilization. It was a challenge to the idea that human rights are universal. And that it feels the same if you're being tortured in Guantanamo or if you're being tortured in a police cell in Beijing. So those were the, some of the principal examples I had. The Middle East as well, I suppose. Sunni, Shia, Palestinian, um, Israeli... The, the most important examples I had of trying to deal with those panthers which Armin Malouf wrote about. More recently, I think we've seen the develop of an, development of another sort of I identity politics, which I think um, is busy undermining um, the world order which was created after 1945. Let me describe what I mean. I read a few months ago, I should have read it years ago, a wonderful book by Stefan Zweig called The World of Yesterday. Um, it was written, I suppose, a bit after the Radetzky March. And Stefan Zweig describes the civilization in Vienna and in Central Europe at the turn of the century. It's a beautiful book. And then he describes the poisoning of that civilization by fascism, communism, class warfare, and nationalism, extreme nationalism. The uh, period when, to quote from W.H. Uh, Auden, 
uh, in the nightmares of the dark, all the dogs in, Asia, in Europe bark. Terrible period in European history. Stefan Zweig writes the book. By this time he's left, he's a Jewish intellectual. By this time he's left Europe. He's in South America, in Brazil. He sends the, the book off to his publishers. And two days later, he commits suicide with his wife because he can't bear what he thinks is happening irrevocably to Europe. He was writing before the 1C conference, which organized the industrial murder of six million Jews. And yet, and yet things turned out better than he feared they would. Because after 1945, with American leadership, we built on the economic and political and moral rubble created in the first half of the 20th century and built something which worked and lasted. And I regard myself as being supremely lucky to have, led, to have lived through that period of history. Institutions, values, which helped to make us all more prosperous and to some extent, more safe. By 1992, Francis Fukuyama was writing that book with a rather silly title, The End of History, in which, to be fair to him, he didn't mean the end of interesting times, but meant the triumph of political and economic liberalism with a small l. Well, it didn't turn out like that. We now face, face <coughs> not only identity politics of the most extreme sort with, for instance, jihadi terrorism, as though that has anything to do with the Quran, has about as much to do with the Quran as the Ku Klux Klan have to do with Christianity, or the British National Front have to do with British values. And in another way, we see it in the growth of that nationalism that Zweig so hated, uh, which is threatening from Washington to here, threatening to undermine the international order that we created in uh, the years under American leadership after 1945. And one of the things that disturbs me about that sort of nationalism is it always depends on defining itself against the other. Remember Enoch Powell making a remarkable speech in 1961 about English nationalism. And there's a lot of sort of Philip Larkin stuff about parish churches and, and corbels and old graves. It's a wonderfully written speech, as you would expect. Barking, but it's a wonderfully written speech. <laughs> and at the end, uh, Enoch finished with a reference to Herodotus and to the fact that Herodotus had, had pointed um, to what was still standing when the Athenians returned to uh, Athens after the Persians had burnt it to the ground. And Herodotus, Herodotus describes that there is still an olive tree there with uh, green sprigs. And he says in the last paragraph of this lyrical daft speech, that perhaps that will be the case in 
England, when we've survived these difficult, stormy periods, he thinks we're living through. And perhaps, after all this, there'll still be a great English oak standing, sprouting green leaves uh, every April and May. Nobody took any notice at all. Six months, six years later, five years later, he made a speech with a different classical tag. This time he quoted from Aeneid, book six, I think, the river Tiber foaming with much blood. And that speech was about grinning piccaninnies. It was about pushing excreta through people's letterboxes. And did people notice that? Car workers in the Midlands, dock workers in London, cab drivers marching in the streets for Enoch. And that is what invariably an excess of xenophobic nationalism produces. Now, we're busy watching America being made great again, as though it wasn't great. And we're in the middle of our own uh, conflict of identity in relation to the European Union. I won't make um, a great speech about um, Brexit means Brexit means what the hell (laughs) just now. But just two points I want to make about it which are relevant to that point about um, nationalism. First is apparently all this is in in order to uh, regain control national sovereignty. I remember the day when I was governor of Hong Kong and the hedge funds attacked the link over a weekend between the Hong Kong dollar and the US dollar. And all around the world there were um, presumably clever young men and women, mostly men, at their computer screens betting money that didn't exist against the reserves of Hong Kong which did. I didn't feel a great sense of sovereign power then, I have to say. And I remember one of um, Bill Clinton's closest advisers being asked what he would like to come back as if he came back again. And he said, well, I used to think I'd like to come back as a great baseball player. Now I know what I'd like to come back as. I'd like to come back as the bond market. Uh, um, I think the trouble is that people very often talk about sovereignty as though it was either defined in in temporal terms. Geoffrey Howe used to criticise this argument by saying people describe sovereignty as though it was like virginity, there one moment, gone the next. (laughs) Or else they seem to define it or describe it as though it was a great um, monument next to the cenotaph, which uh, nefarious foreigners come in at dead of night to knock bits off. Sovereignty is about how much you can do in your own community to uh, uh, protect your interests, to uh, advance your economic interests, to uh, protect your stability, sometimes working with others, sometimes you might be able to do it on your own. The other thing which worries me about where this um, attempt to placate placate, um, right-wing English nationalism has got us. The other thing that bothers me is I don't know the hell 
where it's all going to end. People very often ask me as though I should know, what's the plan? Well, I don't see know why I should know, because the government certainly doesn't know. But it reminds, me, it reminds me of a wonderful story that Michael Foote used to tell. Michael Foote is, is the best orator I've ever heard. I have to say, I don't mean this to be rude to anybody here who's a paid-up member of the Labour Party, but when people compare uh, Mr. Corbyn with Michael Foote, it is like comparing... Um, Ed Balls with Nuraev. I mean, this is not a reasonable, not a reasonable comparison. Um, Michael Foote was a wonderful essayist, wonderful historian, uh, wonderful orator. Certainly the best speaker I ever heard in the House of Commons, with that swooping voice. And he once made a speech in 1981 when Keith Joseph had just been going around the North and the Midlands seeing the ravages created by um, a, 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 an exchange rate that was too high and a tough monetary, monetary policy. Those were the days when economic policy was defined as by M this and M that. You sometimes thought you were perhaps dealing with transport policy, not economic policy. M25 never appeared, but it might well have done. So Keith Joseph, who was a decent man who unfortunately fell among intellectual hucksters, but a kind man, he's going round the north and looks horrified at what he's seeing. And Michael Foote says, the face, the face of Keith Joseph reminds him of his favourite comedian, magician, when Michael Foote had been a member of parliament in Plymouth. And Foote said he used to go every uh, Saturday night to see this, um, this guy performing. And the centrepiece of his act every, every night, he would go down to the audience and ask a rather aldermanic figure in the front row if he could borrow his watch. And the alderman would hand over what looked like a gold watch and uh, the comedian, the comic, the magician would take it up and put it on his desk, cover it with a piece of silk, pick up a ham and bring it crashing down on the watch and he'd then say abracadabra and he'd lift up the piece of silk and look slightly nervous and he'd put the piece of silk down again say abracadabra lift up the piece of silk and look even more nervous <laughs> and eventually he'd sweep from under the piece of silk shards of glass and a bit of watch mechanism and a few hour hands and nervously he'd take them down to the front of the stage and hand them over to the alderman and say, I'm very sorry, I've forgotten the rest of the trick. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I'm afraid, is where we are now. <laughs> we've, we've forgotten the rest of the trick. But presumably Boris will tell us sometime, or Mr. Gove, um, or one of the other heavyweight intellectuals uh, in, the, in the government. So, I hope we can avoid um, this nationalism on either side of the Atlantic uh, destroying the liberal world order that we created. I hope we can distinguish between nationalism and patriotism. 
expatriates don't feel obliged to sentimentalize their history, to assume that um, every institution in their own country is pluperfect, is better than what anybody else is doing. Don't feel obliged to define themselves in contradiction or against someone else, some other country or some other group. We leave that sort of thing to the Daily Mail and to other tabloid newspapers. I think there's quite a battle ahead in order to try to re-establish some of those uh, truths. I, um, but it won't be easy. And it won't end easily. There's a terrific line in, in Shakespeare's King John. Uh, so foul a sky can clear, c- cannot c- clear without a storm. And I think that's true. I think there may be storms. Now, I'm 73. Um, my last book was called What Next? And I sent it to the Duke of Edinburgh because he was then... Uh, Chancellor of Cambridge and I sent him this book What Next and he sent me a very kind handwritten letter saying, thanking me for the book and saying what next he said when you're my age there's only one answer (laughs) (laughs) and I guess soon I should be starting to think that myself but uh, in the meantime um, I think that people like me um, have to reject the notion that we have to quote get over it I'm not getting over things which I think are seriously damaging, the sort of world in which my children and grandchildren are going to grow up. I've, I've, I've been lucky. I'd lem- I'd like them to be as lucky. So there's a lot of work for us to do. There's a wonderful um, <clears throat> Spanish proverb which is contained in a poem by Machado. Uh, Caminante, traveller. Uh, no hay camino. Um, se hace camino el andar. There's no trodden path. Paths are made by walking. And I think there's a lot of walking for us to do. There's more. Perhaps I could start off by asking two or three questions myself and then we'll open it up to the uh, audience. I'm intrigued by this emphasis on the politics of identity, of course. Uh, I take it that you're emphasizing that this has become much more prominent uh, now than in the past. And it leads to the obvious question, why? And is this some kind of game-changing moment? Will it last? I think it's partly because of um, the decline of ideological um, politics. I think it's partly because of the hollowing out of traditional political parties, whether the Republicans uh, in the United States or I think both political parties in this country. I think it's partly a consequence of um, technology of migration. I think it's partly a combination of personalities and, and events. And the most important of those events uh, was, of course, the 
um, the crash in 2008 um, and the extent to which for many people, partly because of the inadequate policies produced, um, followed by their own government, um, that was seen by many people to be, as it were, um, a justification of hostility to globalisation. So globalisation was blamed, whereas uh, I think what usually should have been blamed was the policies pursued by individual governments. If you look in the United States, for example, the United States spends 0.1% of its GDP on retraining in the labour market. The average figure for the OECD is six times that. So there are better ways that people can handle the challenges of competition internationally, better ways than simply uh, denouncing foreigners or um, uh, uh, than trying to make a case for protectionism. And uh, um, I hope we don't fetch up in this country um, as uh, President Trump's lickspittal because of some view that we can somehow get through a difficult period for us economically um, by uh, um, trying to be nice to President Trump. You refer to Brexit in that context in the book, talking about uh, the spread of populism in the UK. And I take it you just emphasised that there is a degree of choice. Leaders are choosing to emphasise a certain narrative, uh, etc. And I just wonder whether uh, you feel you understand the narrative in favour of Brexit. What I'm getting to is that with Trump and with support for, for Brexit in the UK, uh, many identify a milieu of the electorates that has felt excluded, has felt uh, that the pro-European liberal elites, which many of us uh, perhaps would identify with, somehow haven't been listening to them. They don't get it, is the phrase. Do you get it? Well, first of all, I'd be a real... Um, uh, I'd be really dumb if I didn't understand quite a lot of the argument for Brexit, since it's been the dominant issue in the management of the Conservative Party for 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, um, with conservative leaders, not John Major, but other conservative leaders, have run before the wind. Um, so I understand what the um, argument is, uh, is all about. And one thing I, I dispute is the notion that it's simply about um, British or American rust belts, people who've done badly because of, uh, because of the activities of these liberal elites, people who live in Golders Green or Harpenden um, <laughs> or Barnes. Look, you look at the demographics. The majority of people who voted Conservative in 2015 voted for Brexit. They weren't living in Barnsley or Newcastle, or the, anywhere in the Northern Midlands. They were, they were living in really heavy, rust-belt parts of the country, like Aylesbury. <laughs> A majority of Labour voters in 2015 voted Remain. So it's very difficult, I think, to argue that this is all about a f- forgotten or overlooked class. The people who made the difference 
were older, who already had pensions or other um, forms of income which they could depend on supporting them. And I think they were probably um, concerned about their identity because they were encouraged by um, our tabloids to think that that had been irreparably damaged by our membership of the European Union. So um, I, I don't think I have any difficulty in understanding the, the Brexit, the reasons for Brexit, but I have a considerable passion about rejecting those reasons. And two things, thinking back to the Brexit campaign, uh, which I observe. The first was that there was exaggeration on both sides of the argument. I think that on the Remainer side, there should have been more than economic fear available. But on the other side, the level of mendacity was of another order. I heard um, Mr. Gove and Mr. Johnson last week talking about the importance of, um, of stepping back from the cap on nurses' pay. And I thought, but why don't we spend that $350 million a week that was going to be available for the NHS and for nurses' pay? Also, I think it's worth remembering the extent to which a wink and a nudge was given to people's often totally unjustified fears about immigration. Which, if it's a problem, which I don't think it is, isn't a problem of EU immigration. Three quarters of immigration to this country since 2005 has been from outside the EU. I was in last week, um, I was um, um, in the Royal Brompton Hospital. Thankfully, I came out. <laughs> um, there were 15 nurses on my ward. One of them was British. All the rest came from other EU countries. So what's with all this hostility to EU migration? In the campaign, it was, if you remember, shown in posters, not as um, nurses from Portugal or anaesthetists from Italy. It was shown as hordes of Syrians pouring in, or hordes of Turks who were about, millions of them, millions of these Turks were about to decamp from Istanbul to Aylesbury. <laughs> so um, I, I think that um, uh, the Brexit campaign was, even by the standards of political campaigns, um, pretty mendacious. Thanks. Uh, perhaps the last question from me to take you on to another part of the book is your period in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, you've said in the press recently about the uh, weakness of uh, successive British governments towards um, Beijing. Uh, but I wonder, in the new global Britain post-Brexit, can we actually afford to be as assertive towards Beijing as you apparently would wish us to be? Or anyone. Can we be assertive, apparently, to Saudi Arabia? We can sell them arms, which they can then use to bomb Yemen, where there are 300,000 300, people at the moment um, suffering from cholera. 
um, where the Saudis are actually supporting al-Qaeda. We can do that because we need to sell them weapons, apparently, for our, to show we're global Britain. Um, let me say two things about Hong Kong, which was not easy for the for British governments morally and not easy um, according to some economically. The first point I agree with. Let me explain. Just before I left Hong Kong, I was visiting a hospital for the mentally ill in the New Territories. It's an old hospital with um, uh, the wards in Nissen huts and with Outside each Nissan hut, an area for exercise surrounded by, by wire. And there was a sentier down, down the middle. And I was going down, down it with my sort of comet's tail of doctors and officials and bodyguards and the works. And a very smartly dressed Chinese chap in one of these wards starts rattling on the wire and saying, Governor, Governor, can I ask you a question? So I say, sure horror of, of private secretaries. So I go across and says, what, what can I do for you? So he says, would you, would you Governor, he says, um, agree with me that Britain thinks it's the oldest democracy in the world? And I said, well, it's sometimes said. <laughs> he said, and would you agree with me that China is the last great totalitarian state in the world? And I said, I suppose so. So he said to me, well, could you tell me how the oldest democracy is handing over to the largest totalitarian regime, the people of Hong Kong, without ever asking for their views? It was a morally impossible question to answer. And when Emily Lau asked a succession of British ministers that, they all thought she was being unreasonable. Well, in a sense, she was, because there was no answer. 1898, add 99 years, and you get to 1997. And there was nothing we could do but hand Hong Kong back. You could argue that we could have done more to embed um, the rule of law and other things while we'd been there, and democracy. But you couldn't argue that it was politically possible um, for us to do anything other than to hand it back. But the point the madman was asked... Sorry. The point that the man who was in a mental hospital was, 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 uh, was making was the sanest question in Hong Kong. And unless you understood that, I always thought, as a, as a British diplomat or political figure, you weren't going to make any progress. At the same time, you had to understand as well how for the Chinese, Hong Kong represented on their doorstep a reminder of a century of humiliation where we were really guilty, trying to globalise the Chinese economy by selling people opium, with some help from the Chinese themselves, including, in due course, Mao Zedong and the Communist Party. The second thing which was difficult um, commercially and economically was that we had lots of people, there always have been, deluded into thinking that the only way you can do business with China um, is by bending lower than anybody else. Now, why do the Germans sell so much more to China than we do? It's not because they kowtow more energetically. It's because they have more things which the 
Chinese want to buy than we do. And I used, to, I used to deal with this question, and it never really worked, by actually looking at the figures. Before I was governor of Hong Kong, um, uh, having these endless rows with the Chinese, being turned into a democratic hero by the Chinese news agency. Um, before all that, British exports to China had, had for the previous five years, nosedived. When I was governor of Hong Kong, exports steadily rose to China, not just in relation to what we had been doing, but in relation to all the other OECD countries. So the one thing you, could, you couldn't argue was that having an occasional politi having a political row with China was necessarily bad for business, because the Chinese, by and large, do business on the same basis as everybody else. They buy what they want at the best price they can get. If they can get some of the intellectual property as well, they'll get it. Um, and um, uh, if, as well, this assumption that you have to behave in a politically correct way is going to help them around the world, then they're not going to say no to that. So, um, final comment on that. When uh, Norway was punished for um, giving the Nobel Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo, the Chinese said, we're, we're going to stop importing your products. And the main thing the Norwegians sell to China is salmon and smoked salmon. So guess what happens? The sale of Norwegian salmon rockets to Vietnam. <laughs> what do you think the Vietnamese do with it? They sell it on to China. <laughs> but, but my own view is that if the Chinese continue to get away with this canard, um, you can't really blame them. I don't think they respect us for it. Uh, I don't think it's the way they do business. What they have been very successful at doing is slipping and sliding away from the commitments they made when they became members of the WTO. Uh, and both the American and European Chambers of Commerce keep on making that point, and American and British governments take no notice. Thank you. Well, you've been very attentive, so let's now open it up to questions from the audience. There are the colleagues in red with microphones. Can you please simply identify yourself and then ask the, the question? Could we take the gentleman at the back? Perhaps we can take two or three together. Yeah, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is James Barker. Um, thank you for the talk. Really interesting. Uh, you, you described yourself as a patriot right at the start of the talk, and you mentioned patriotism briefly towards the end. But apart from saying that it wasn't nationalism, you didn't really say what it was. So could you just explain what patriotism means in, in your sense and, and what it is to be, to be a patriot? Okay, thank you. Uh, could we take the gentleman on the front, please? You refer to the Could economic... you say who you are, please? Sorry, Christopher Cordes. Um, you refer to the economic crash, financial crash, and its consequences of 2008, and relate that to particular government policies. Would you regard it as the government of which you were a member as being considerably responsible for the British part in that? 
Okay, thank you. And could we take the gentleman uh, in the middle and then we must uh, have gender balance. And Nicholas McLean, uh, could, could you say something about the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice? The British government seems to have turned the ECJ into some sort of bogeyman, whereas reality seems rather different. Thank you. Okay. Um, first of all, um, responsibility for what happened in 2008. Well, owing to the fortunes of war, um, owing to... Uh, the exigencies of democracy. Um, the last time I was in, in a government was 1992. So it would, I'd have been pretty formidable um, if my influence or my partial um, influence had lasted 16 years and helped to bring on the crash in 2008. I think... Was the gentleman referring to the um, regulation of the city and changes therein? He, he might have been, um, uh, in which case he's got a better point, though, um, <laughs> though I, I think I was probably, um, when the Big Bang happened, um, in uh, the Minister for Overseas Development. Um, where I agree with you, and I've written about this at some length in the book, is that in this country, but even more in the United States, we suffered a sort of triumphant neoliberalism uh, in which any role for the state was downgraded. Um, President Reagan, when he was still making paid speeches for GE, made a famous speech, I think it was the same time as the Goldwater campaign, in which he said that the most uh, worrying words in the English language were, I'm from the government, um, I'm here to help. <laughs> and for years, for years, that seemed to um, be the basis on which American regulatory policy and to some extent economic policy was based. So you had Glass-Steagall, um, you had other, you had those lobbyists trying to remove every sort of uh, regulation. You've now, of course, got that uh, having, we, we suffered from that, though you've now got an administration which is trying to, which is trying to put all that back, back again. So I, I've never believed um, in that sort of economic management and indeed um, compare it with what the Eisenhower administration did in the early 1950s when it actually tried to bed down um, the changes made by previous democratic institutions and gave um, America huge investment in in higher education through, admittedly, the Pentagon, huge um, uh, investment in roads, huge investment in housing. By, the night, by 2008, 2009, um, it was a non-regulated paradise, apparently, in which, unfortunately, uh, real incomes were still being squeezed, uh, and people were encouraged to think that they could uh, still uh, manage because in an unregulated market they could borrow as much as they wanted in order to buy houses uh, and of course um, that turned into the housing crash in 2008-2009 but American borrowing levels from I think 1974 when it was American debt was about 680 billion by 2008 it was um, 14 trillion I think a huge increase. Every American household had on average 13 credit cards. 
Um, so a combination, I think, of deregulation, um, particularly in the United States, but to some extent reflected here as well, um, neoliberal uh, economic policy, uh, and a squeeze on uh, net disposable income because of an increase in the um, in, in, uh, because of, a ch of changes in the Gini coefficient, I think those had um, the consequences which I've described. And interestingly, the Gini coefficient was much showed a much more socially equitable, equitable society um, under President Eisenhower than it does than it does today. Um, on patriotism, one way I'd describe patriotism is a passionate belief in our values as a society. And I took some offence at the speech that President Trump made the other day in Warsaw about what he argued were the values of Western civilization. It seemed to me that for him the values of Western civilization were all about keeping Muslims out uh, and um, uh, that was about it. Um, and I think our, our values are about mutual tolerance, are about the importance of international cooperation, are about standing up, whether it hurts you or not, for the rule of law, are about freedom of speech, freedom of worship, all those freedoms we associate with a pluralist society. Um, and I think that it should be a part of our foreign policy to try to promulgate those values in our relations with the rest of the world. So, my last visit in Hong Kong last November, I'd made several speeches saying how strongly I supported the movement for greater democracy in Hong Kong. But I'd also said um, that I didn't support the way that had morphed, partly because the um, young men and women involved had been denied any dialogue, I didn't support that morphing um, into a campaign for independence or nationhood because Hong Kong is never going to be a nation state. It's going to be a great city. It is a great city. But I thought that um, development played into the hands of the hardliners in Beijing. It diluted support for democracy. Um, and it was a blind alley. So I was in, asked by students at all the universities to go along and make that case to them. And I spoke to about 800 in uh, Hong Kong University in the big hall there. Um, and they were very polite, they were very firm with me. They didn't agree with what I was saying. Um, and at the end, one of them said, well, we've heard what you've said, Governor Patton, as if I was still was. We've heard what you say, but what happens? What does the British government do if the Chinese simply ignore their um, promises and tighten the grip on Hong Kong's windpipe? Well, what will we do? I don't know whether, whether our sense of uh, honour survives. I don't know whether it's going to be part of global Britain. But I don't see as much um, evidence for it today as I would like to see. Because I think that an, 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 an example of a patriot is somebody who has a sense of that uh, value. So um, 
I could talk more about patriotism, but that's certainly part of it. One other thought about patriotism. I think history is an insurrectionary subject. And I think it should, reason and facts and understanding should take you where they will. And I think you have to understand history from other points of view as well as your own, if you're a real patriot. So when somebody like Shashi Tharoor writes about the impact that Britain had on India, um, I think it's an important argument to take into account. Um, because if you're an Indian, things don't look quite as they do if you're British celebrating the Raj. When King Edward VIII went to India for the one and only time, he was talking to a group of Indian advisors and he pointed to the buildings in New Delhi and said, look at what we've given you, these great buildings, bridges, railways, institutions, what more do you want? And one of his Indian advisors said, rather bravely, our self-respect. And I just wonder how much we've understood that. And the ECJ? Oh, the ECJ. Well, uh, there is... Um, sorry, Nicholas. There, there, there is, um, I think, a growing sense that um, the government, and perhaps the Prime Minister in particular, but egged on by others, egged on by um, Mr. Dacre and the Daily Mail and some of her colleagues in the Cabinet, uh, took a view that... Um, the ECJ was an um, unwarranted intrusion into uh, British sovereignty and into Britain's way of life. The fact that most of the decisions which it takes or has taken are the direct result of Margaret Thatcher's enthusiastic and successful espousal of the single market is something we leave conveniently on one side. But you think what it's meant. We're at present apparently in the process of leaving Euratom. Now if you were a physicist in the university I know best, you would regard that as you got on the bus um, to the Taurus project in Oxfordshire, you'd regard that as being a pretty calamitous piece of advice or decision. If you were interested in the future of moving nuclear materials for hospitals or other reasons around. You'd regard that as a pretty terrible uh, decision just because the ECJ has some say in uh, policing uh, that uh, agreement. So I think it's, it's crazy. It's even crazier, of course, when you talk about the European court in the Strasbourg sense, which is there directly because of us, um, uh, pursuing an agenda which was written by us. But that's another story. Okay, let's take another uh, round. Um, everyone is male. Uh, <laughs> fine. Okay, okay. Uh, please. Hi, Katie Lee. Um, so my question is about, you mentioned that it's been 20 years Hong Kong's been returned to China, and now we've seen substantial changes in what's been promised under the John Declaration of 50 years and change in terms of policies. How do you see the future of Hong Kong when that 50 year ends, which is now in only 30 years? 
Thank you. And let's take the other lady. To ask a Hong Kong question, I'm Dr. Amelia Roberts. Um, we actually bumped into you about two or three days before the handover. You may recollect or you may not, but you were walking the mountains in Saigon with your wife and your two little dogs, Whiskey and Soda. And That's great, but I think you're going to ask a question, aren't you? Uh, okay. I'm going to ask about whiskey and soda. Come on. <laughs> Once an academic. I, I was one of the Motley crew, anyway. Um, the question is, given that Beijing chipped away quite quickly at the efforts you put into place to secure democracy and the rule of law, do you think there's anything you could have done differently to have altered that? Okay, good. Thank you. And uh, someone up here, can we take the lady uh, on the first row, please? Hello, uh, Robin Klingler-Vidra. Another question on... There's another microphone coming because it's kind of a Hitchcock film with birds. No, no, no. We need the microphone. It comes. Okay, better, less scary. Um, Robin Klingler-Vidra, thanks very much for the talk. Another Hong Kong question. Um, in a previous book in East and West, you mentioned the words industrial policy make your stomach curl up inside. And I was curious, in the contemporary context, do you feel the same way? Or has the role of the state changed 20 years on? Thank you for that. Uh, I think this must be the last round. So okay. Let me start with that one. I think I said that um, in making a comparison between Hong Kong and Singapore. I don't doubt that Singapore has been, in many respects, a great success. But I'm not comfortable myself with social engineering. And I think that Hong Kong had done so well economically by following, in part, a policy based on um, the great Michael Oakeshott. It avoided doing things which, are har which were harmful and tried to do a few basics which were helpful, like investing in education, like investing in infrastructure heavily, and like um, keeping taxes low for business. Now, the other thing about Hong Kong is it's a great example of the um, truth um, uh, enunciated by one of my heroines, Jane Jacobs, the great um, urbanist, who argued again and again about the relationship between urban clutter and economic growth. And I think Hong Kong was one of the best examples of that. So if anybody had said to me, <clears throat> the best way of helping uh, Hong Kong entrepreneurialism is by letting the government get involved, I might have pointed to um, the story of Hutchison Wampoa or others and said, I'm not quite sure I believe that. Remember Lee, Ka Lee Kuan Yew once saying to me, um, if I had your people, my G GDP would be 25% higher. And I said to him, but you'd never get people in Hong Kong uh, to queue, not to smoke in the street, not to chew gum, and to wear those white shirts and 
gray pants. Um, I, I admire much about Singapore, but I don't admire um, social engineering all that much. With one exception, I think the Singaporean housing model in which public housing is related to the provision of pensions has been a brilliant idea. The, can yeah. I just follow up? Um, I'm now confused because you're saying that you're uncomfortable with social engineering. Rab Butler is your hero. Butskalism uh, marked that period. Is there some social engineering which you like and some that you don't like? Or what, what's no, the... I don't. I mean, I, I think Rab Butler um, would have had some difficulty uh, in uh, accepting uh, a description of him as a social engineer. Um, the 1944 Education Act, um, which was destroyed largely because um, the British government failed to invest enough in technical and vocational training uh, and in what were then called secondary modern schools. Um, uh, the Edu- the, um, B- the B- Butler Education Act was about trying to create social mobility. It wasn't about trying to socially engineer um, our future. Um, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not keen on, on social uh, engineering. Okay. Um, on um, uh, my dogs. <laughs> Matthew Paris, who was staying with us on one occasion, said, said that some people back in Britain, he wrote an article in the, a, a column in The Times, some people in, in Britain think that uh, um, the governor and his wife are well-known in Hong Kong. He said, if you think they're well-known, you should, you should hear about the dogs. Um, the dogs used to... were portrayed in a very funny um, uh, column every day in the uh, strip cartoon every day in the Hong Kong Economic Journal. Could we have done more to embed democracy? Sure. Um, and I think that there are a lot of questions which one day will have to be answered about the... I would say this, wouldn't I, but about the 1980s rather than the 1990s. In the longer term, what happened in Hong Kong with democracy was understandable. First of all, there were real worries in the, when Mark Young, who was governor, um, and others in the 40s and 50s talked about developing democracy as it happened in our other colonies. There were real worries that um, any democratic parties, any political parties in Hong Kong would get sucked into the fighting or to the political arguments and the fighting between the Kuomintang and the communists and, and what the residue of that. Secondly, the Chinese themselves, Chou Enlai, through a message, among other things, to Harold Macmillan, said, don't start introducing democracy in Hong Kong Because if you do that, people in Hong Kong will start to think they're going to be independent one day, like Singapore or like others. So please, don't don't think that that we want you to do that or that you should do that. But thirdly, the strength of feeling about democracy increased partly, this is something that Marxists should understand, partly because of economic development and because of educational development. We helped to educate young men and women um, in Hong Kong's universities and in our own. And they read Adam Smith, and they read Burke, 
and they read, and I hope they could understand, because I have some difficulty, Michael Oakeshott, and they read others. And then we, they went back to Hong Kong, and we expected them to reach the view that democracy was for everybody else, but not for them. They became lawyers. They became doctors. They, they did astonishingly well, but we, but we wanted to choke off that aspiration. And in the 1980s, particularly as we got closer to um, the handover, there was a growing strength of feeling, growing movement led by uh, the lawyers in Hong Kong and led by other people, including the feisty Cardinal Emeritus, Cardinal Zen. And the British government was reluctant to move. But come the joint declaration, come the basic law, and the government recognised that they have to do something about democracy and they have to do something about increasing the number of directly elected seats in the legislature. So they decide the best thing they can do is to hold an opinion poll, which will give them the answer to how much people want democracy. And amazingly, even though the figures show very strongly that people want more democracy, the government managed to morph the figures into the opposite conclusion. And my predecessor but uh, one, Teddy Ude, who alas died in office, every attempt he made to do a bit more to protect civil liberties or to in, 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 increase democratization was blocked. It was blocked by some of the sinologists in the foreign office like Don't Speak Ill of the Dead, well, why not, Percy Craddock um, and others. So that by 1992, we were constrained and could only operate within the terms of the joint declaration. I mean, within the terms of the basic law. And my reputation as a great Democrat doesn't come from trying to increase the number of directly elected legislators. It comes from trying to make the system as fair as possible and increase the number of people who could actually vote in the elections. But I was made into a, into a democratic hero when the real heroes were people like Emily and Martin and Cardinal Zen. And the real heroes today are Joshua Wong and his colleagues who have to be incomparably braver than I've ever been in my life. Um, la the, can I just briefly yes. answer the, the question? other what question? 20, 20 years, 20 years on, 50 years, um, 20, 40, so look, um, I got Brexit wrong. I got President Trump wrong. <laughs> um, I don't feel very certain about saying what's going to happen in a fortnight. <laughs> so 2047 um, is for me a long way off. And I would like to hope that between now and 2018 or 2019, the British government would do more to protect Hong Kong's freedoms and human rights and civil liberties, and that it would encourage others to recognise that if, if Hong Kong is cheated on these issues, it's going to be very difficult to trust the Chinese, mainland Chinese, on anything else. But if I had, by 2047, I will be um, positively ancient, even by the standards of the Chinese Politburo. <laughs> if, I, if, I if I had to put my mortgage on it, I would think that Hong Kong's sense of citizenship of pluralism, commitment to the rule of law, will last longer than the Politburo of the Communist Party. <laughs>
I'm sure this is, sorry, just one moment. Uh, I'm sure it's whetted your appetites, and with, as with any good uh, book launch, uh, there is the opportunity outside the theatre for you to have uh, the book signed by uh, Chris Patton, um, our guest. And I'm very grateful. I'm sure I heard, just as we came on stage, Chris Patton saying that at least 5% of the sales tonight he would donate to me. So... Um, <laughs> I must have heard that. I'm sure I did. Uh, but, uh, so please do buy it. We all have an interest in doing that. Uh, but also, uh, please join me in thanking Chris Patton for a, a very entertaining <laughs> Thank you.